This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urate moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Trauma has become an increasing concern in organizations over the past few years. It's a really hot topic. The trauma experienced by returning combat veterans, trauma that for too long has been seen as part of the job, as it were, for first responders. The society-wide trauma, the pandemic, wildfires, floods, and other devastating events that we're now seeing in the headlines virtually every day. A recent report from the CDC indicated that first responders are more likely to die by suicide than in the line of duty. That's a sobering, sobering finding. EMS providers have have an elevated risk of suicide compared to the general public, and up to a quarter of public safety communicators have symptoms of PTSD or depression. Again, sobering. CNN reported that suicide rates among active duty military increased 41 one percent between 2015 and 2020. Healthcare is another profession experiencing extensive burnout and other stress-related trauma. It really has become such a widespread uh, experience. It's, we, we have to deal with it. And that's why this phenomenon cannot be ignored by those who lead. And there's an emerging field of trauma-informed leadership that we'll explore in this episode of Leader ReadyCast with my guest, Dr. Dawn Emmerich. Dawn is a former CEO of two nonprofits and has served as a county and city government executive. And today, she devotes herself to helping other leaders understand trauma and how it can both inform and improve their leadership. She is committed to helping prepare 1 million trauma-informed leaders by 2031. It's a laudable goal, and we hope we'll help her get here by introducing you to her on this episode of Leader ReadyCast. So, Dr. Dawn Emmerich, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited uh, to do this and to just share with your audience, you know, such an important topic. So thank you again for inviting me. No, my pleasure. And thank you for your work. And let's start at the beginning for those who are not familiar with it. What exactly is trauma-informed leadership and why do you feel it's so important? It's such a great question. And, and, you know, there really wasn't a whole lot of definition out there a couple of years ago. I feel like when I started really focusing in on this, that I was sitting out there by myself. And so, you know, I kind of put together a definition of, you know, based on experience and based on my own, my own personal experience and, and the literature and research that's out there, you know, trauma-informed leadership is really about being in tune to your own social and emotional needs as a leader and understanding how some of those social and emotional characteristics that we have influence the people that we lead. And it's not just our, the teams that we lead, you know, our emotional and social needs influence our board. It influences our county commissioners, our city, city council. It influences our vendors. Um, It influences our peers, right? Like we, we belong to a team as well. We just don't lead a team. We belong to a team. And so it's really just about being in touch with that and understanding how it really does impact people around you. And if you're not in tune to your emotional and social needs, i.e. your trauma, your unresolved trauma, 
it really can have some devastating uh, effects on the people that you are surrounded by. Now, you spent several decades as a leader in the field working as an executive. How did you come to focus on this work? You know, it was a gradual thing. Um, I'm a little bit of a leadership nerd. And no matter That's good. What, we like that. <laughs> no matter what position I've always been in, I can always just even remember in high school, um, you know, I just I always wanted to lead. I always I didn't necessarily always wanted to be the president of an association. I just always liked gravitating toward people and identifying a goal and helping us get there, like that process of helping us get there. And as my career went through, um, you know, I always was sort of in that health and human services sector, whether it was in government, nonprofit, or even the private sector, is still always around mission-based and working with families and, and so forth. And, you know, what I would what I would find is I love change management. That's really my space. I love change management. And, and we know that in the science of change management, there, there's, you know, this thing called the big R that's called resistance. And all the literature around change management science and theory would always talk about, um, you know, where people are, why they resist, how do you get them through resistance? But it was always sort of positioned around discipline or, you know, hard to work with employees or employees that were unmotivated and always sort of had this negative discipline kind of a connotation. And, and my mind just kept gravitating to, but what is it about the psychological perspective of that employee? Where's the feelings? Where's the emotions? Where are the emotional needs of that employee? Like the root cause of the resistance, not because they're bad employees or just hard to work with employees, but something else is there. And I started just trying to understand, you know, that worldview that people are bringing into work and how do we unpack that? As I started sort of leading from that lens, it started kind of surfacing on its own, Eric, where I thought people are bringing in that emotion into the work and into the workplace. And, and you know, we don't normally like that. It's always sort of, you leave that at home, you right. leave that in your community, you don't bring that into work. But that is just so unrealistic to me, especially now. So I remember doing an assessment. It was in an organization I worked in that I was leading in Oregon. And I didn't, or I was new, I was a new CEO there. And I did this organizational assessment with folks and didn't really turn out much of anything um, other than the typical, like, yeah, trust and belonging and that kind of thing. And it was great. So then I got a promotion and I went to another organization and I started asking questions around um, feelings and emotions in my assessment. And boom, there it was. They, uh, this set of organization, it was all trauma just absolutely surfaced. I mean, you do a word cloud, um, and trauma was everywhere. When I was doing one-on-ones with folks, they spoke of trauma, not just trauma in the workplace, but trauma in their, in their personal lives outside of work. And that was it. Um, that's what started me incorporating it into my leadership work. Now, 
here's the thing in 2020, um, you know, I personally was in a really tenuous uh, leadership, a new leadership position. I had just gotten recruited and, and took on this job and this executive role. And the environment in which I was working in which I was leading was a really toxic environment with very toxic leadership. And that's when I personally started examining my own unresolved trauma. And there was this collision. Quite frankly, there was this collision between toxic culture and my own emotional and social needs that I never I never thought of myself. I was always trying to help others. And it was at that moment where I said, you know what, this is, um, this is beyond organizational culture. This is about leadership and what we bring into that leadership role and why, if we don't address our own personal stuff, it doesn't matter how wonderful your culture is. If you've got hurt leaders, you're going to have a hurt organization. And I know that was a long answer, but that's the no. journey. That's the journey, Eric, right? Like that's just part of Absolutely. understanding how complex this is. Absolutely. And so I've seen so much more openness to discussing these kinds of issues over the last few years, which is really useful. I don't, you know, at the MPLI, I'm, I'm the amateur biologist on the team. Mm -hmm. And part of what I know from, from those studies is you know, we as mammals are emotional beings. We cannot yes. function without our emotions. They're, they're as critical to our, our survival and our thriving as any uh, cognitive ability we have. Right. And yet we've tried to deny that for so long. But you know, the, I always point out that the, the greatest number of neuroreceptors in your body is in your brain. The second greatest number is in your gut. Yeah. And there's a big, long nerve running up and down your spinal column that connects the two of them. And they're always, <laughs> always in communication. Always. Um, yeah. and, you know, and, and, here, and then Eric, and then we're like told to turn that off when we walk into the workplace. Right. But and you're right. We're supposed to try, try and turn it off. Yet, again, we know about mammals is that ma mammals never forget trauma. Mm. Right. As much as you may try and suppress it or say it isn't relevant here, um, we all somewhere back in our recorded memory, because, again, our our system is designed to try and keep us alive. So if you've encountered something bad once, your system wants to help you avoid it in the future. So yes. it contains that, that, that positive, that, that recording back there permanently. So um, yeah, so this whole notion of, you know, leave those emotions at home, just come in here and get to work uh, yeah. just goes against our basic biology, our psychology. And, and as you've found, you know, through, through your, your experience and that of others, and it's great to hear that people were willing to open up, be it on a word cloud or in a discussion or whatever to say, Hey, here's what we've gone through. And here's where we're, here's why things are so difficult, particularly when it comes to change, as you mentioned, talk about yes. change management, you know, for a long time, we've said, you know, change is, is fear inducing for some people. Mm -hmm. Now we know a lot more about why I yes. think and what you're talking about is sort of, and, and that you can't just explain it away to people. You've got to actually help them get through their feelings around it. So, and, and you know, for the longest time, you know, I think that that's where we're at a reckoning a point of reckoning right now is that for the longest time, we've been able to get away with that philosophy of just come in and do your work and go home. We've been able to get away with that. Um, but 2020 changed the game for everyone because trauma is not just for those people anymore. You know, we are as a nation, 
as a nation are experiencing collective trauma that we have never seen before ever right and and to and to assume otherwise is irresponsible um but i think of our young people right like i'm i've got 15 more years in the workplace 15 maybe 7 maybe 17 um but I'm thinking about those 18-year-olds coming out of high school who are choosing to go immediately into the workforce or the 21, 22-year-old who's just graduated or they're looking for internships and they're looking to get into that professional workforce. And I think about all of the crap, all of the trauma, all of the mass shootings, all I mean, all of it that our young people have been literally exposed to from the day that they were born. And our workplaces are not ready for this, Eric. They're not ready for this future workforce to come in with so much um, episodes of mental health challenges and exposure. And we've got to do something about that. We, We have to change the way that we operate our organizations and the way that we lead. So let's let's talk about that a bit and unpack it. Um, you've written about three organizational design concepts that can catalyze trauma-informed leadership. What are they and why do they matter? Yeah, you know, I, again, I took sort of the literature that was already out there in my own 20 plus years experience of leading. And I came up with this model, my model of the power of three. And the power of three, you know, so we talk about trauma-informed leadership. But again, as we mentioned before, leadership is also a part of, you're also a part of a larger system, an organization. So we've got to think about that too. So the power of three are three sets of items that are really important. The first set is leadership, of course. The second of that first set is trauma-informed systems. And then the third one is organizational environment, right? So that's the first set of three. The second set of three is how is your organization structured? What is your vision and what is your strategy? All of those things are really important. The third set of three includes people, process, and program. That's the power of three. You all have to think, you have to think about all those three sets. But in addition to that, every decision, everything that you do around the power of three has a do no harm lens. So it's a risk mitigation, it's harm reduction. So our decisions around change management, our decisions around restructuring, our decisions around strategy, how we do professional development, how we do talent acquisition and recruitment, um, our quality quality assurance process. In those that operating an organization with people, with your people resources, Every decision that you make should have a no harm lens. And if we can do that, boy, we're mitigating a lot of secondary and vicarious trauma for sure. So so how do you do that? How do you get through some of the difficult decisions? You say reorganization, sometimes having to uh, uh, let people go or enter some new unplanned territory. What's that new harm, no harm, do no harm lens look like? Yeah. Wow. It's, it's, do we have three hours? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, no. Yeah. Give us a give us the short version. The, the short version of this, I can let me. So let me just paint a, a real picture again, just to sort of get what we're talking about. 
you know, so imagine a fishbowl, imagine a fishbowl with one goldfish in it. And that fishbowl is your organization and the goldfish is your staff, right? And um, so right now, when we talk about trauma-informed leadership, we're talking about taking that goldfish and making them the best goldfish that they can be. But we also have to think about the fishbowl because unfortunately, so many of these fishbowls are dirty. They're dirty fishbowls. So what we're seeing in our country right now, which is a good thing, where we're seeing this really elevated awareness around increasing mental health benefits in the workplace, giving people the opportunity to, you know, to go and seek counseling or providing them the, you know, those mental health benefits that we so need. The problem with that, Eric, is that if you are in a dirty fishbowl and your goldfish gets to go to therapy once a once a month for an hour, they get to come out of that fishbowl, get their therapy that so wonderfully is now an added benefit. But guess where they have to go back to? They have to go back to the dirty fishbowl. And so we can we can have an individual approach to trauma-informed leadership. But if we're just sitting there swimming in our own toxicity, then we're not really doing the hard work. And so that's why we have to look at changing that fishbowl and trying to understand why is it dirty to begin with. Some of it is, again, making sure that your leadership in the organization, that they are trained to be trauma-informed. And that also requires each of us as leaders to do our own personal work, right? That's recognizing some of our own stuff and fixing it. It's the metaphor in the airplanes of putting the mask on yourself before you put it on anybody else in an airplane. And so we do need to look at what our own triggers are. Are we creating some of that dirty fishbowl ourselves by the way that we lead? Are we authoritative leaders? Are we coercive leaders? Are we power hungry? Are we holding information in order to have power? Like really examine your own emotional work, your trauma in your past, is that resolved and are you able to handle it? And then look at your leadership style. We know that a more visionary coaching, affiliative type of, um, of leadership style is, is the leadership style that's more conducive for a very psychologically safe environment. We know that. Now, let me also just state this. What I'm not saying is that you should be affiliative all the time. We know that in leadership that you have to be situational leaders. So at times you may have to be authoritative in emergencies. This is what we're talking about, right, Eric? Right, like right. In, our, in this space, you've got to be a more authoritative leader when you are in emergencies or in a response kind of thing. What we're talking about, though, is that that shouldn't be your default leadership style all the time. And so you make it a situational style versus your go-to style. Um, so that's one thing. So we do a ton of training to get people to be a little bit more self-reflective of their own stuff, examine their leadership style and their emotional intelligence. Um, the other thing that we then do is look at that system and say, okay, what are some of the things within the system that could be provoking? Um, and I always use change management as, as an example to that. Um, if we're doing top-down change management, where this is what we're going to do, you're going to like it, 
If you don't like it, you can hit the road. Um, well, I have news for you. If you don't already know, people are doing that. And so this great resignation is not just a headline. This is happening. And people are saying, I don't need this anymore. I've got, I'll go somewhere else. And they will leave. And they are leaving. And so a change management, a trauma-informed change management process is really tapping into your, your staff, meeting them where they are, understanding the root causes of maybe some of that resistance, and creating a connection, a relationship with your staff to help them move through that change continuum in a partnership not in a top-down, do this or you're out, but really in a partnership of understanding, um, you know, why there's some resistance and what can I do to make this better or easier for you? Yeah, it's really interesting what you talked about there. And I know when I'm engaged in talking about change management, I always try and promote the idea that resistance is a great resource of information. Yes, it's because an opportunity, isn't it? It's an opportunity. And is why is someone resisting? Is it they don't understand what you're trying to do? They're afraid of what you're trying to do. They see something you don't and realize what you're about to do is going to have a have some unintended co- consequences. You know, there's a whole re- whole range of reasons why they may be resisting, uh, not just that they're stupid and you're you know you're smarter than they are and you're driving this yes. change because only yeah. you can see it. Um, and I think you're, what you're adding to is another dimension there of everybody's carrying something in their backpack that we can't see yep. in terms of, of, in terms of, of trauma and past experience and that you need to be aware of, of your own as well as that of theirs as to why, why that may be triggering resistance. Uh, and it, it's, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but a lot of what you're talking about is, is actually getting to know and care about your people. Um, so, you know, <laughs> so it, it, it sounds kind of, ba- sounds kind of basic, um, but it is sort of, getting to know and care about them. And that's why they'll follow you. That's why you should be leading them. Uh, and it would seem that that then opens the door to being able to, to, to deal productively with, with the trauma that's in the system and in the individuals. You, you, you're, you're right on. And here's, here's the thing that I always tell people, this is not rocket science. I have not created something new. My framework is really taking a lot of these concepts and pulling it together so that you understand that fishbowl metaphor and that we can you know, work toward um, you know, cleaning that fishbowl. But this is not new information, Eric. I mean, it really comes down to basic understanding basic psychology and human behavior, understanding that this is the stuff that public health has been working on since the beginning of time of understanding that what's happening in your community, like place-based public health is, you know, your social determinants of health in your home and in your community shape who you are. And it goes back to what we talked about before, but for some reason, we don't want to have that conversation in the workplace. Those social determinants of health bring are, are brought into the workplace. And so we, as, as leaders and as an organization, just as we're encouraging communities to put resiliency in place, why can't we do that in a workplace? Why is that taboo? And so doing it in the workplace, which is really where we spend most of our time, it just doesn't make any sense to me why we're late in that. So 
you know, so here's a couple tips that I would, that I would say again, not rocket science. It's just a matter of a way that you see things differently in terms of how you operate in your organization. That process that I just mentioned in the change management, you know, that's not a very agile process. And I would, we can have a whole nother conversation about agile change management. We don't have time today, but that, in my opinion, that's not a very trauma informed approach. Not to say it's not a bad approach because it works sometimes and it's necessary. It is not very trauma informed, but um, when we're looking at the way that you engage your staff, so he- here's what I would, here's what I have done, and I and I all I often recommend this. You have one on ones with your staff, and those one on ones are non negotiable, and those one on ones are not performance related. You don't have those once a month one on ones to talk about how how good or bad they're performing. Those one-on-ones that are non-negotiable, you do not cancel at all as much as possible. We know things come up, but those are your opportunities to build trust, to assure safety, to understand collaboration, to really better understand and get to know your staff. How can I help you um, be connected in this, how can I make you successful? How can I help you be successful? What can I do to help build trust between you and I, right? That is once a month. And here's the thing, here's the reason why that's important. If we were all gonna go to the dentist once a month, and we knew that every time we went to the dentist once a month, they were gonna pull teeth or give us a shot. So, if that happened all the time during these one-on-one appointments with the dentist, we would not be scheduling out six months from now. Like we would not be looking forward to those dentist visits. Your time with your staff should not be painful. And so these one-on-ones are really there to build trust and a relationship with your staff. Once you do those, you can do then 15-minute huddles at the beginning of each week. 15 minutes, everybody gets together on a Monday morning on a phone call and you run through your day. And the last thing that that leader should say is, is there anything that I can do to help you meet your goals by Friday? That's your second thing. You do that every month. Then you do quarterly meetings with your staff to review performance. That way you have enough time in between, the staff have enough time in between to do any type of performance correction or to get in a training that they might need. And the the staff can expect what's going to happen on those quarterly meetings. It's not going to be any surprise. It is about performance review. And then you celebrate those. Like, And then you have these team meetings where you can celebrate the accomplishments. Those are simple things. But I can tell you out of all the years that I have been leading or have been working, doing some type of TA, it's rare that I find folks that will even have one-on-ones with their staff where they're not talking about discipline or performance. And so that's the piece that we need to change. That's So, so that's human-centered right? Like that's a human centered approach, which oftentimes is, you know, equal to a trauma informed approach. That's really interesting. And what a, what a great cadence of that, that weekly huddle, that very short huddle to know we're all on the same page and on the same track, the monthly one-on-one, which is more of a, a human connection. And then the quarterly performance review, 
Uh, so as you say, it actually gives you time to perform or to, or correct course if uh, if need be. I and to, to your point of sort of avoiding, I recall earlier in my career, I uh, worked for a company with a really brutal CEO uh, and had a, we- a weekly meeting of his direct reports. And and one of the things you knew was that he was always going to pick up somebody, pick out somebody, and make them a a public flogging uh, victim. And so we we did everything we could to to avoid those meetings. You arrange your travel, so you're out of town that day. You got sick that day, whatever. Uh, and people really, and he was a fear based leader, and it was really so unproductive. Uh, and yet, yet never having the one on ones to find out people, he was sort of inducing trauma as opposed to trying to be trauma informed. Yes. Um, but uh, yet another CEO I, I know uh, in the healthcare business who uh, in, in the healthcare industry when he took over his health system. One of the things he did was he uh, he has only two group meetings a week um, with the safety committee. And then there's one other one. I've forgotten what it is, but everything else are one on ones because he said, you know what? Most of those those big roll call meetings, they're a waste of time. You can read mm. the memo faster. You can whatever. They, they, there's information sharing in a very efficient, inefficient form. Yet on the one on one on ones, you actually get to know people. You can go deep with them. You can discuss a whole range of issues, and it builds a, a much different relationship with them than if you only see people in that uh, in the in the in the group meeting once a week or once every other week. That's right. You know, um, I, I would be curious if if maybe if I could just live, give your listeners something to chew on. Um, yes, please. Let, let me, so if you're listening to this, I'm going to put out a, a few sets of questions and I want you to think about it in a couple of ways. Number one, I want you to assess yourself. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to state these little statements and I want you to say, yes, I do that. Or no, I don't do that. That's the first thought I want you to think about. But I also want you to think about from the lens of your staff, how would your staff answer these questions about you, right? So flip it both ways. How do you think you're doing? But then say, how do you think your staff think you're doing? So let me ask you a couple of these questions. So in trauma-informed leadership, there are six principles, safety, trust, peer support, collaboration, um, giving staff voice and choice, and then taking in consideration culture, history, and gender. So those are the six principles. So here are the questions. I am physically and emotionally safe at work. Again, think of yourself answering that question, but then put yourself in the shoes of your team member and how do you think they would answer that question? I'm physically and emotionally safe at work. That's the safety one. For trust, my supervisor is transparent with me and communicates regularly, openly, and honestly about why and how decisions are made. Peer support. Me and my peers experiencing traumatic stress are given space and or support forums in the workplace. Collaboration. My supervisor collaborates with me to determine how to meet goals. Voice and choice. My trauma is acknowledged by ensuring I have a voice within the organization. And then culture, history, and gender. My organization recognizes how factors such as historic trauma, racial trauma, discrimination, and culture impact experiences at work. 
that is research-based, is evidence-based. This is SAMHSA. I didn't create this. But this is the model that is used in the community. This is the model that's been used for 30 years in a clinical setting to help deliver trauma-informed care to families accessing services. So Eric, the question is, why can't these principles be in the workplace? And so that's what I've done there. I've taken those same six principles that have been researched and studied and know to be evident-based. And I am reframing them to say and to position this in a way of our employees and our leadership. And I would challenge you, if you're listening to this and you sort of thought about some of those questions, the way that you answered that really can help you determine whether there's an opportunity for you to do things differently in your workplace. Those are very thoughtful questions for our listeners to, to digest and, and think about. And, and the last question you posed is certainly a powerful one of why can't these become more routine in our workplace? And I think they, I think they should. I'm then gonna give you one last question, which is something I ask all of my guests. What gives you hope? Hmm. You're It's a pretty tr- crazy world out there. We're seeing lots of trauma. You've pledged to try and help train a, a million trauma-informed leaders by 2031. So what gives you hope? You know, I, I have a little goosebumps. It's kind of, it's, it sounds kind of silly, but I literally got goosebumps just hearing you say, ask me that question. And I anticipated that question. What gives me hope is that I'm on this podcast with you right now. You've leaned in. People are leaning in and understanding the importance of this. I think it's getting traction. And that's what gives me hope. It gives me hope that people are now finally recognizing that, yes, we are human beings with lots of, we're hurt. We're hurt. And I, the requests that are coming in, the people that are taking my classes, my training, I'm on LinkedIn. I have a LinkedIn course, and I have just about 6,000 people who have taken my course since the end of April. Um, that's what gives me hope. And other people are doing this work. Remember, I said at the top of this podcast, I couldn't find any information on this. There was nothing. And if you Google trauma-informed leadership right now, it's all over the place. And I'm thrilled about that because that's what gives me hope is that people are understanding this and now we're doing something about it. And I'm just thrilled about it. Well, that's great. And we're certainly happy you're doing the work and others are as well. Thank you, Dr. Dawn Emmerich for joining us for this podcast. If you want to learn more about trauma-informed leadership and Dawn's work, as she mentioned, she's on LinkedIn as a LinkedIn course. You can also visit her website, dawnemmerichconsulting.com. There you'll find a link to her fabulous TEDx talk and, and many more resources. I encourage all of you who are listening to, uh, to don't just put this down and walk away, but actually think about how can you bring more trauma-informed practices into your, into your organization and into your own leadership. And until next time, Always be ready for that you're at moment when you're called to step up to lead. Thank you. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts 
and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.